You see, people are probably wondering if you are new and this is a, uh, the first time you've been to our Brock Church or ever heard a series in Revelation. Maybe you're wondering why is it that we would choose the book of Revelation of all books to go through? I mean, some might think it's quite contentious, right? Contentious because we can have multiple ways of interpreting certain things. And I want to tell you just off the bat, that's okay. It's fine. They're open-handed issues. We can disagree on certain things about how things are going to unfold. The good news is, is one day we'll all know. You know, and so up until then, we can choose to disagree on some things. Or maybe you think to yourself, but this is super divisive, right? It talks about some heavy stuff, judgment, heaven, hell, redemption, reward, all of this crazy stuff that we tend to avoid because it just makes people feel uncomfortable. Well, I don't know about you, but I need to hear those things because it reminds me of the king that I serve and the kingdom that I'm a part of. And so instead of being divisive or crazy or difficult or scary, the book of Revelation was given to us by God to unite us. And I just want to remind us as we go back into the series, because we've been out of it for about six weeks, of some fundamental things that I believe we can be encouraged with. We go through the book of Revelations because it reminds us first and foremost that above all other revelations out there, whether that's personal prophetic revelations to you as an individual or revelations or prophecies that are given to you as a church or a body, this revelation can be trusted. And we know that because in the opening verses, John tells us that this is the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is his word. He is taking the stand, and we can trust Jesus, and so we need to hear what he has to say to us. Secondly, the reason why we go to the book of Revelations is because even though it was written to specific people living in a very specific time, in a very specific region, i.e. the seven churches, we also know that that number seven represents the totality of God's kingdom. And so if the word was relevant to the church then, it's relevant to us today. So we can't just put it aside and say, well, that's just uncomfortable to talk about. No, we need to talk about it. Thirdly, the revelation starts with this statement, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so if we are sold out for Jesus and if we love him the way we say we do, and I know we all do in this local church, then let me tell you something. We need to know Jesus more than anything else. And so if it's about Jesus, I want to read it. Fourthly, it reminds us that even though the things of this world or the systems of this world or even the circumstances that we face in this world seem desperate, dark, and even out of control, they're definitely not out of control. They're in the control of the living God. And we'll see that as the series starts to unfold. And then lastly, and I said this right at the beginning of the series, when we read the book of Revelation, it produces something in us. Revelations 1, 3 says this, Blessed is he who is he's the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, for the time is near. The book of Revelation, when read, listened to, absorbed, ingested, and taken into consideration, produces something in us, and it's called a blessing. Now, I don't know about you, but I need God's blessings in my life. I'm not seeking them, but I want them. I'm not only loving God for his blessings, but if this tells me that if we can study this book, he will bless us through it, I want to be a part of that. And I hope you guys want to be a part of that too, and I hope you're excited to get back to it. So in this first section that we covered, we looked at the seven letters written to the seven churches. There's eight major sections in the book of Revelation, eight distinct breaks and different topics that we're going to go through. The first one was about the seven churches. And what we know is that each of those, those churches that we looked at became known for something. They became known for a particular character trait or a particular response that they had to the kingdom. The first church, the church in Ephesus, became known as the loveless church. A loveless church because they were critical. Religious, self-righteous, that allowed themselves to lose their first love. And in that, that allowed this wickedness to set into their hearts. And God said to them, remember the heights from which you've fallen. You need to go back to where you were. And so the warning for us was don't ever become like that. Don't become critical. Don't become self-righteous. Don't think that you're better than anybody else in this world or even worse, anyone else in this church. Because guess what? We're all at level ground at the foot of the cross. 
The second church, Smyrna, which was actually a good church. There's two good churches in the book or in the seven letters, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Smyrna became known as a suffering church, a church that despite you know, the fact that they chose to escape or not participate in the economy of the day and therefore put themselves into trouble, chose to honor God above all else. In fact, their bishop, the guy that started and looked after that church, Polycarp, went to be martyred because of his faith. Pergamum, Pergamum became known as the compromising church, a church that had friendship with the world and friendship with God. You can't have both. Not one foot there and one foot here. We've got to be sold out for Jesus. Thyatira showed us that there can be such things as churches that tolerate. This church in particular tolerated fo- false teaching. Jezebel came into the church, taught people, led them astray. The church in Sardis became known as the dead church, a church that was sleeping, who forgot the Great Commission, who forgot that life existed beyond them, and just got comfortable where they're at. Interestingly enough, that city, Sardis, today doesn't even exist. I think that there's something in that. I think that where the light of the world is absent, things die. And so if the church is not going to be the light of the world, we will find death. Philadelphia became known as the Eden Church, a great church, another good church, right? The church that loved God passionately, who served him, who did not compromise. So much so that God said to him, I set before you an open door. And I said to you when we preached that message that I want to be like the church of Philadelphia. I want God to say to us, Hope Rock Church, here is an open door. Here is another open door. Keep walking through them because I'm taking you into your inheritance. Laodicea, unfortunately, was the worst of all of them. And that was the lukewarm church, a church that God said, because neither you are hot nor cold, I will spit you or vomit you out of my mouth. A church that had become so comfortable being relevant, so comfortable being rich, so comfortable looking at the outside appearances of what their buildings looked like, how big their worship team was, how nice the chairs were, how good the coffee was, that they forgot about Jesus because, in fact, he was locked outside the door. We want to not say that none of those, I'm not saying that none of those things are necessarily good things to have, but at the expense of Jesus, I don't want them, and neither should we. And so what we learned from section one was that just like those churches were capable of getting it horribly wrong, I realized in that series that God showed me that we're capable of getting it horribly wrong, both individually and corporately as a church. I don't know about you, but God pinpointed certain areas for me going through that series where he was like, "Hmm, here's a little bit of a a wake-up call for you because if you continue down this road, you can end up like that. Equally, the good news is at the end of every letter is the commendation from Jesus to say, for those that conquer, for those that overcome, I promise you, and you will receive, and there is this blessing in Christ. And so as much as we've got to take accountability for the things we need to fix, we can take heart that there are blessings for the things that we're doing well. And so let's do more well than bad. And now we start this next section. The next section deals with the seven seals. And in it, we're going to sort of move away from focusing on the church as a sort of organic organism, and we're going to start taking a little bit of a higher approach and looking at things from a different perspective. God is going to start dealing with things from this point onwards, pretty much, in the book of Revelation that deals not just with the church in the world, but ultimately the world around us as well. We're going to look at things that affect everybody out there, not just us. And so can I ask you to turn with me to Revelation 4? I'm going to pray real quick, and then we can jump right in. Father, thank you for just the awesome privilege to hear your words to hear you speak. Thank you for the encouragement that you give us every time we read your word. That even sometimes when we read challenging words, you encourage us. I pray, Father, that today you would give us, as Mark prayed this morning, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we would hear what it is that you have to say, and that we would not just hear it, but that we would apply it, and we would have a revelation of something new today. More more than anything else, that we would have a revelation of you, Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. And the church said, 
Amen. Good, because I was drinking water. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. And we're going to, I'm going to like pause every now and then. I hope I don't confuse you today. But there's certain things that I just want to sort of touch on today that might not necessarily, oh, I hope it flows, but just don't get, just stick with me. Just stick with me and you'll be fine. I promise you. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. This is John speaking, by the way. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Interestingly, a lot of what we're going to see in this chapter of Revelation is echoed through the book of Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. I would encourage you to actually go read those books while we're going through this next section. Those books will help you understand a little bit of these visions that are seeing. A lot of the stuff is very similar. I'll give you some scripture references as we go through that you can sort of touch on, but read those books. Those are great books to read. This verse opens with this statement. It's a statement that John says after this, and it ends with this other statement that says, I will show you what must take place after this. I'm highlighting this because at this point, we need to ask ourselves the question, a question that is fundamentally going to affect the way that you interpret revelations. Now, to be clear, there is no right or wrong answer here. But there's two ways that we can look at this. We can look at this as being a chronological sequence of events that are going to unfold one after the other. Or we can look at this from the perspective that this is one event that affects the entire globe that we look at from different perspectives. Now, I'm not going to tell you which one to decide on and which one you want to choose. In fact, I, I urge you to go study it yourselves. But ultimately, I'm going to preach from what I understand it to be. And I believe it's the latter. I believe that while John is receiving these visions in sequential order, he's getting them from God in order that he's been given them, I don't necessarily think that it deals with historical or the historical order of events. In other words, some events have already happened. Some events might still happen. And some events will happen repeatedly throughout the entire age of the church. Another important thing I want to, important thing that I want to point out here is John references this voice that he's heard, this voice that's commanding him to do what he's doing now, the voice that sounds like a trumpet. If you remember in Revelations 1.10, in the second installment of Revelations, we read this. It said, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And what this is telling us is that this section that we're going into, this new section in the book of Revelation, is not some great dream that John had about thoughts that he had or opinions that he had or things that he wanted to tell us. But what we are seeing is that John is continuing with what Jesus is saying to his church. And so Jesus is speaking to us in this section as much as he was in the first section. It's the voice of God that we're listening to. Verse 2 starts. It says, at once I was in the spirit. So John is having this heavenly vision. He's been taken up into the spirit. That term in the spirit happens four times in the book of Revelation. And every single time we read, I was in the spirit, John has been removed from what we would understand as the natural world. Paul has the same experience in 2 Corinthians. He says that I was taken up to the third heaven. He says whether I was in body or out of body, I don't know. And the truth is we don't actually know whether John was teleported to heaven like Star Trek or we don't know if John's consciousness was taken to heaven. And the truth is, it doesn't actually matter. What is pretty cool, and this is just not part of the preach, is God took a man who was stuck on an island in a cave somewhere else. So if you ever go to jail, just make sure you ask God for some visions. Please don't go to jail either. That's not cool. Unless you're going there for the gospel. But I'm just saying, I thought it was pretty cool that God would take John on this journey because he was stuck. What is important is not how he experienced this or where he was, where his body was. What is important is what is God saying to John? And so, so what is he saying? Well, as we start to get to this next, next section, what we'll start to see is the revelation 
of the judgments of God, the judgments that God is about to release on the earth and how it's going to be carried forward. And I mean, his purposes carry forward throughout the age of the entire world, both past, present, and future. Now, it's at this point that I just want to pause because it's at this stage in Revelation when we read the first books, we read, oh, the churches are so cool. Yeah, we can get better, do this, do that. Now we start getting into judgments and everyone's like, ooh, this stuff's pretty scary. It's at this point in the book of Revelations where we start to get a little bit fearful. I've got to be honest, listening to some of these judgments is pretty scary. Some of these judgments are pretty fearful. Some of them are really hard to hear. But I want to remind us and encourage us of some things before we even get to the judgments. As hard as suffering is, What we have to understand is that whenever the church preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we fulfill our mandate on this earth, when we do what God has called us to do and we fulfill the great commission, we know Christ and we make him known, then guess what happens? There's a promise in scripture. Jesus said to us that if we preach the word of God, we will face opposition, right? If they hated me, they'll hate you too, right? And so what I want to say to you is that suffering is not something that's always to be scared of. Sometimes it's a great honor. It's an honor to suffer for the kingdom. It's an honor to suffer for Christ. Ask Polycarp, ask Peter, ask all the saints that went and were martyred for their faith. Sometimes suffering is a privilege. The other thing about suffering that I want to raise with us is that even though we are not from this world, we are certainly in this world. And that means that at times we are going to participate with the suffering of the world. What do I mean by that? Well, being a Christian doesn't automatically exclude you from war. I mean, just go ask the saints in Ukraine today. They'll tell you very much that they are in the middle of a war. They weren't somehow taken out of the war. They're right there in it. Being a Christian doesn't somehow somehow exempt you from getting sick or being affected by pandemics. We've all been through one. We know that. We weren't somehow miraculously teleported somewhere else so we didn't have to go through it. Being a Christian also doesn't save you from high gas prices. All of us know that too, right? The fact is, all of us are living in this world. And so when suffering comes upon this world, there is a reality that believers are going to suffer alongside it. Thirdly, as hard as suffering is, and this is probably the toughest one for us to hear, sometimes suffering is necessary. Sometimes suffering is the way that the Lord reminds us that we're living in a fallen, broken, sinful world. A world that isn't all that it's chalked up to be. Can you imagine if this world was about unicorns and rainbows and lollipops everywhere, candy floss? We would never want to leave. We want to be here all the time. The fact that this world is broken gives us a desire for a bigger glory, a glory that will come one day when we get resurrected with Jesus Christ. And so we live for eternity because we know that this world is broken. What's more sometimes, and this is the hard one, God uses suffering and difficulties in our lives to temper us. Sometimes it's because of our sin. Sometimes God uses it as a way for us to realize that we need to repent. Sometimes it's just called sanctification. God takes us through this journey where suffering becomes part and parcel of us growing up in Christ. Paul says it so beautifully. Because no matter why we're suffering and no matter what suffering we're going through, in Romans 8.28, Paul says, For those who love God, all things work together for our good. Say all things. All things means all things. Not the good Not the nice, not the comfortable. All things means that God will take the hard things, the difficult things, the miserable things, and he will use them for our good. The question is, do we believe that? I'm asking us this question because as we start to read about these judgments, that perspective, that reality of whether or not you truly believe that matters. And I've got to tell you this, the only way that we'll ever really be able to believe that is if we start to take our minds off ourselves, take our minds off our world, off the perspectives of this world, and replace our perspective in a heavenly one. 
We place our perspective where God wants us to live. He wants us, yes, to be of use to the world, but he wants us to live with a kingdom mindset. And so this morning, we're going to go through this uh, next topic, which is a glimpse of heaven. And I believe it's through a heavenly perspective that we can truly believe that when God says all things work together for our good, we can trust him. And so let's do that this morning. And I want to ask all of this under one big question, and that is, what is heaven like? Turn with me to verse 2. Well, you're probably there. But verse 2 continues after John says, and I was in the spirit. He says, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So the first thing that we see about heaven and what heaven is like is heaven is a place where the glory of God and his rule are obvious. There's a diagram that I created just to help us uh, understand this. I wish I thought of this myself. I took this from another guy that created it. Uh, his name is Hendrickson. He died a long time ago, so he doesn't mind. But um, this picture, you know, because when we, when, we, when we look at this vision from our mindset, it's hard for us to understand exactly what, what's being said. So this picture is designed to try and help us. I'm going to fix it up a little bit more this week, and next week we'll touch on it again. But essentially, the picture that we're looking at is in the middle. There's a throne in the middle. There's one seat on the throne, represents the King of Kings, God the Father, and around him are all these beautiful sort of pictures of this glory, this precious stone. And what John is telling us in this vision that he saw is that heaven, the place that we all aspire to go to one day, but it's not the end destination, I'll get to that a bit later, is the place where God's rule is obvious. God rules the universe from the center of that throne. That throne is where the universe is ruled. It's governed. It is in his sovereign plan to look after every single thing that we see happening in this world, around this world, and all over the world. It is not out of the purview of God. He sees it all, and he's on the throne. Sometimes we forget that he's on the throne. Sometimes we think that somebody else is on the throne, that there is a person on the throne. God is on the throne. John sees this clearly, and he starts to tell us about certain features about God. Now, he doesn't describe God because he can't describe God. Nobody can describe God. We are sinful beings. He's trying to tell us about things that he saw. And so he says that he's got, his glory is like Jasper and Carnelian. What's interesting about that is Jasper and Carnelian are the first and the last stones that you found on the breastplate that the high priest wore. There were 12 stones on the breastplate, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. First one, Jasper, last one, Carnelian. Jasper represents God's grace, his love, his mercy, his beautiful, mighty spirit, Carnelian, represents his judgment. See, the God that we serve, although loving and gracious and there for us and there to cheer us on, is also a God who has justice in his heart. And so he will always bring about his justice when needed. The second thing that John says is there's this rainbow, a beautiful rainbow around the throne. Now, where have we heard a rainbow in Scripture before? The ark. As in the days of Noah. Matthew says that these last days that we're living in will be like the days of Noah. The days of Noah were bad days, depraved days. The world had lost its mind. How many of you think the world's lost its mind? I certainly do. But let me tell you, God called a man, Noah, who was righteous before him, and he gave him instructions on how to build an ark. That ark, by the way, is Jesus. But through this, what John is trying to tell us is as God had mercy for Noah and humanity, God will have mercy for us too. And so no matter how these judgments unfold, no matter how difficult they may be to read, guess what? God will be gracious to his people. The point I'm making is that heaven reminds us that as hard and as difficult as it may be to understand that there is suffering coming to this world and there is a fair amount of it already in this world, it is all leading us to a new creation. 
There is a process that God is unfolding in his perfect world, in his perfect plan. And guess what? That new creation isn't just going to come one day. It's in heaven already. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. God's bringing his eternal kingdom to this earth one day. And that gives me great hope. The second thing that we see about heaven is it's the home of all of God's people. Not some people, not certain people, not those that tithe enough, not those that look a particular way, but all of God's people. Revelations 4 verse 1 says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Remember how at the end of every letter to the churches, I spoke about it, there's a commendation for those that overcome. Remember, God promised people certain things. Some of them were going to be given. In fact, all of them were going to be given these white garments. Some were stones. Most of them were going to get a reward, an inheritance, a crown. And so these elders that sit around this throne, I don't believe represent angels. I believe they represent the redeemed of God, those who have overcome. But there's some symbolism I want to get to. But here's the deal. They have crowns on their head because they have overcome and they co-rule with God around his throne with the lamb, which we'll get to next week. The truth of the matter is when we overcome, when we walk into the fullness of the inheritance that God has given us, we will rule and reign with Christ. That's the promise we have in Scripture. All of us combined, the totality of God's people. The symbolic nature of the number 20, 24, not 27, that's a bad number, 24, represents something else. It represents the merging, the marrying of the old and the new covenant, I believe. The 12 tribes of Israel come from 12 brothers who ultimately formed the nation of Israel who looked towards a promise that was coming one day. They knew that one day the Messiah would come and they were saved because of that. And then the second 12 are the 12 disciples, the apostles who built the church together in heaven, united under one common purpose. And what is that purpose? It's the same purpose that we gather for on a Sunday morning, to worship the eternal God of the universe. And the reality that's being conveyed is that heaven is a place where unity exists where God's people are united across their biggest differences. The enemy wants us to be a people that are consistently isolated, alone, left out. Why? Because we struggle to find unity in the church. But if we truly pray the Lord's Prayer and we say, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we need to strive and contend to be united in all that we do. In John 17, a passage of scripture that God has been consistently reminding me of, John prays this prayer about his disciples and then he prays for all of those that will come afterwards. And he says that you would make them perfectly one as we are one, Jesus and the Father. Our relationship starts with our unity in Christ, with God and the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And then it starts with each other. We work out unity with each other on this earth, but the kingdom is a place of unity. And so if you feel alone, if you feel like, man, there's going to be a season ahead where it's going to be tough. Let me tell you, what you need to run to and not run away from is connections, relationship, and community. Because that's where our strength is. Obviously, it's Jesus, but you know what I mean. The third thing that we see is heaven is the place where the power of God is manifested. Not sometimes, not in moments, but all the time. Verse 5 says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. It's a Mount Sinai moment. The, the glory of God has descended. Like I said last week, when the angel came down, the glory of God has descended. There is a fearsome and awesome sight to witness when God descends. Believe me, I think we would all be shaking in our boots, except they never had boots, they had sandals, just to be clear. But this beautiful picture of God's power, his sovereignty, it's the swift judgments that flash from the throne of God. Verse 5 continues, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Those seven spirits, if you want to know what they are, go to Isaiah chapter 11. The spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of power, the spirit of might, the spirit of the Lord, the Messiah, God. It represents the Holy Spirit, this candle, the menorah. There's a picture there, Dino, wherever it is, just put it up there with a little arrow. There it is. There's, no, that's the wrong picture, bro. Okay, no, it's fine. There's the candle. You can see it. 
that represents the Holy Spirit. And the reason why I'm bringing this up to us is when we think of heaven as the place where God's glory is manifested, that's great. You're like, man, that's amazing, but we're not in heaven. How do we sense? How do we feel? How do we operate in the power of God? You know what my Bible tells me in Acts chapter 1 verse 8? It says, for you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That dunamis power of the Holy Spirit is accessible to us today. So the same power that shoots forth from the throne is the same power that lives in me. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. And so if we want to experience the power of God, because it's the power of God that transforms people, believe me. We can have access to it. We've got to invite the power of God into our lives. And so no matter what we face, no matter how hard the future may look, we have the manifest presence of God with us because God has poured out his spirit on us. And how much of it we experience depends on how much we desire. The day we were saved, the spirit of the Lord came to live in us. But there is a moment in time, friends, when we take our relationship from just having the indwelling spirit with us to activating the power with us, but that's up to us. We have to say, Lord, show me your power. Reveal more of your glory to me. Use your power in my life. Not not for my glory, but for yours. The fourth thing that we see in heaven is it's a place of absolute peace and purity. Revelations 4, 6, it says, And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. This sea is used in the Old Testament. It's called the laver, or it's the bronze basin. And it's a reminder of what the tabernacle looked looked like on this earth. Interestingly, and just as an aside, This picture of the throne that we see in the book of Revelation is exactly the pattern by which the tabernacle was built. When God gave Moses the instruction to build the tabernacle, this is what it looked like. It was centered around the heavenly realm. Go forward to the temple. It's centered around the heavenly realm. And you know what's more? Today, the church, we are commanded to operate in the same way. The laver now is not a basin that we wash our hands in. The laver for us today is Jesus Christ. You see, before the priests could go into the tabernacle, they had to be purified. Before we can enter into the presence of God, we've got to go through Jesus Christ. And so the same picture applies to the church. What's more, in this picture, the sea is described as being calm, peaceful, like a piece of glass. Now, I know that some of us have been to some romantic places in our lives to go on holiday, and you've seen some really still oceans, but let me tell you, those are generally behind coral reefs. Go out into the open ocean, and the one thing you'll never find about the sea is that it's peaceful. The sea's got waves, it's got currents, it's got wind. In fact, one of the characteristics of the sea is that it is restless. In fact, throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, the sea was always used as the picture by which we would understand the fallen state of humanity. The world is a restless place. It's full of sin, and because of that, it moves to and fro. That's why one of the beasts that will come out later comes out of the ocean. It comes out of the sea. It's dealing with our sinful human hearts, but in heaven, That sea has been calmed. Why? Because just like Jesus provides a purification for our sins to enter into the presence of God, Jesus brings peace to our lives. Now, again, you say, well, that's great, Marco. It's beautiful. I want to go to heaven. Can we go today? Because I like it. It's peaceful up there. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, which means that the same peace that exists in heaven, we have access to this side of eternity. Which means when you watch the news or whatever it is and you start to get that anxiety well up in your spirit, whatever it is that's causing you, you can go to the Father and say, Lord, I need your absolute and perfect peace. Why? Because sin was dealt with on the cross. My eternity is secure and I know where I'm living. The last thing we see is that heaven is a place of worship. Revelations 4 verse 6. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes, in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. 
and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around them and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Don't ask me to explain this picture to you. Like, I honestly don't even understand it myself in terms of what it actually looks like. Personally, if I see something with eyes everywhere, I'm out, bro. Like, I'm done. Like, it's cool. But we've got to look beyond that. This is an illustration. John's trying to describe something to us. The eyes are symbolic of God's omniscience, his ability to know all, to see all, all the time. Not at some moments, every single time. The wings on these creatures describe the reality that these heavenly beings, which are supernatural beings of higher state, these are the cherubim that, Ezekiel, that Isaiah talks about and the seraphim that Ezekiel talks about in Ezekiel 1 and 10. These are beings that are swift. They respond to God's word. When he says go, they go. That's what the wings are. They can deal with God's judgment, execute his will at the drop of a notice. And it's through the all-powering, all-wonderful, all-knowing God that they do that. And they do two things that I see in the scripture. First, they show the holiness of God through his creation. It's interesting. These beings are given representations that we can understand here on this earth, animals that are used to represent them. The first is the lion, right? I'm from Africa. We have lions. You don't. You call these mountain lions. They're not mountain lions. They really are cats, like little baby house cats. A lion is a fearsome beast, let me tell you. But it represents strength and honor. It represents the almighty God. He is noble and he is to be respected. You do not walk into a lion pen. Believe me, you will respect a lion. It is beautiful, but let me tell you, it's a fearsome thing to stand before the second thing is he talks about this calf or ox. The second being represents this calf and reminds us that God is the perfect servant. Think about it. The ox is the most powerful of all domesticated beasts. What does he do? Does he do anything he does for his own glory? No, everything he does is for us. God is the perfect servant. Man, and it's not the whole man, it's just the face of the man, reminds us that God is perfect in his majesty. God, like us, has a conscience. He can ration. He can think. He can feel. We were modeled after him. We were created in his image. God is the perfect picture of humanity. I don't even want to use that word humanity because he's not human. We're broken. He's perfect. The eagle reminds us that God is perfect in his deity or his deity, whichever one you prefer. The eagle is the fastest bird in the sky and the most beautiful of all the winged creatures. And there's four of them. The number four is significant. Whenever we hear the number four in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament, it's pointing back to creation. The number four represents the creation of the world. On day four, everything was created. The sun, the moon, the stars, all the, the plants were already put in. It represents the completion of God's creative work on this earth. And then he populates the earth. And so these are God's agents, God's servants. They represent his creation. And they, like creation, worship their king. Psalm 19, verse 1. Charlie's favorite scripture says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals His knowledge. The creation today is worshiping God. It never ceases. It never stops. And just like the creation never ceases, neither do these angels. And all they do, day in and day out, from Isaiah 6.3, says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. In Hebrew, when you see a word mentioned twice, it means pay attention. And three times... Very rare. In this case, what it's calling our attention to is God deserves the highest degree of praise because after all, he's an infinite and holy God. And that's why creation worships him after all because he's infinitely holy and infinitely worthy. 
verse 9 says this, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Notice there is a divine order to things there that we have to pick up on. The first beings to worship God are these beings that represent creation. Creation worships God first. And then after they start to worship God, the elders, the redeemed, the saints worship God too. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, listen, this reward that you've given me is great, but you are far more of infinite value to me. Saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. There's something in that that I believe God wants to point us today that we seem to forget in our lives. Next week, we're going to look at God as the Redeemer. We're going to see the Lamb of God and the redemption of the world. But before redemption can happen, before you and I can be saved, we had to have been created. Before the world could be redeemed, it had to have been created. One of the greatest gifts that God has given anyone in this room, forget about natural talent or gifting, is the gift of existence. Do you know that? If you hadn't existed, you would never have the privilege to serve a living God. The greatest gift that gets given to us on the day we're born is the gift of existence. Because it's through existence that we can start to worship our King. Creation kicks off this process. Redemption finishes off the process. And sometimes we look around us and we think, but I'm not as gifted as everybody else. I'm not, I'm not as talented as everybody else. But you know what? You exist. And like David, we say, Lord, take this heart of mine, take these hands of mine and do what you want with it. And the truth of the matter is this, that because God created you, because God took his infinite time to build you as a unique individual person who, person who is special and different in your own right, just like God took this world and created so many different species, so many different biomes, so many different landscapes, he created all those things. Why? So they would be redeemed. You might look at creation today and think, man, it is hopeless. It is lost. I want you to know this morning, something that you need to take heart as we go through the series is God has not abandoned his creation. That means he has not abandoned you. And you know what the cross did? The cross reversed that. The Bible says that they did not know what they were doing when they crucified Christ. But what that moment kicked off, that moment where Jesus said it is finished was the moment when creation was starting to be restored. And right now we're in that process. You and I are part of that process. But this world will come back to the way God wants it to be on earth as it is in heaven. And so what's heaven like? It's a beautiful place. A place of absolute power, the manifestation of God, the presence of God, the peace of God, the purity of God, the joy of the Lord, worship. If I was selling tickets today, everybody would say, listen, sign me up, I'm going there today. But I want to remind us all of something that's, I think we tend to forget. Heaven is not what we're living for. Yes, it's great. Yes, we want to be there. And yes, as believers, we'll have the privilege of being in God's presence in heaven. But the blessed hope that the Bible speaks of is not dying and going to heaven. The blessed hope that the Bible speaks of is the resurrection of all the saints on the last day when Jesus Christ comes back as the rule and reigning king. That's what we live for. And so I want to encourage all of us this morning, if you're weary, battle-weary, tired, or ready to give up, I want you to remember one simple thing. Every time we gather to worship God, every time we go to our prayer closets and we start to pray to God, every time we draw on the scriptures for inspiration, every time we communicate with God in the car, every time we bow our knee to the Lord as the Lord and Savior of this earth, you know what we're doing? 
is we're pulling heaven right here to this earth. It is here with us. He is with us, friends. He has never left us. He will never leave us, and He will never forsake us. And so throw at us whatever needs to happen, Lord, because we know in this perfect place with you, we are safe, we're secure, and we're in your arms. Amen. Catherine's got a word. I wanted to come share it real quick with the church, and then we're going to pray. Um, so I'm reading from Isaiah 40. I would encourage everybody to go read the whole chapter. Um, and so from verse 21, it says, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Amen. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. And then when we go down to verse 27, God says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be wary, and young men shall feel exhausted. And this, I love this, but it says, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Amen. And they shall mount up with wings like eagles, and they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. And what I love about this is that we are referred to as grasshoppers in this scripture, but the Lord sees us. And He is holy. And how can we talk of a holy God and not get emotional? I just, I can't help it because He's holy. I'm not, we're not worthy to be in His presence. But yet, He tells us to wait on Him. And that waiting is when we let go of our own strength and our own ideas. And it's when we wait on Him and we sit in His presence and He strengthens us. And then what we do brings Him glory because we're doing it in His strength and not our own. So I just want to encourage you, if you feel weary, our God does not get weary. And if you wait on Him, and it seems like God is calling us all to a season of waiting. And that season of waiting is that we wait to hear Him before we act. And we don't wait for the world to show us the way to go. Here we stand. I think when God speaks, it demands a response. So if anyone here is battle-weary, as Catherine said, if anyone is in this waiting season, or perhaps you're in a fearful season where you're looking at the circumstances and you don't know how to gauge them or what's going to happen, I feel like that this morning we can cry to God and remember that A, He is on the throne. B, He is ruling and reigning everything. C, He loves us and He has us in His heart and He is with us. So if you need the Lord to maybe touch you this morning, encourage you and remind you that you have access to the throne room, and maybe if you could just raise your hands with me, and we're going to just pray and we're going to ask God to reveal that to us, to make that revelation real in our lives and in our hearts and in every moment of our lives. Heavenly Father, I pray for all of us here today. We look around us sometimes and we wonder what's going on, Lord. Thank you for reminding us that you're in control. And that one day we will mount up on wings of eagles. And that can even happen this side of eternity. That you will renew our strength. 
I pray, Lord, that you would give us fresh revelation of your awesome majesty, that like John saw you seated in the heavens, that we would have a similar experience in our own lives, that we would see you high and lifted up in a position of power, in a position of authority, and that we would take heart. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless this local body with an experience of heaven on this earth. In our daily lives, let us remember that we are people that live for eternity and not just for the here and now. Strengthen us, protect us, and watch over us. I pray this in Jesus' name. If anyone needs prayer for anything specific, our prayer team will be at the back, at the back corners. Please go and they'll pray with you and stand with you in faith. Let's worship our King.